0: welcome to another salvation by grace midweek message salvation by grace is the teaching ministry of grace christian assembly a sovereign grace fellowship in smyrna tennessee we are currently working our way through the book of isaiah so open your bible and join the congregation of gca along with our teaching pastor jim mcclarty
1: Next Wednesday is the day before Thanksgiving. Now, I know this year people are not going to be as prone to travel, especially considering all the COVID regulations that are out there. What do you all think? Would you like to take next Wednesday off for Thanksgiving? Or given the situation we're in, would you prefer not to? Okay, there's one, so you're not going to be here. Yeah.
0: We'll what: be
1: And you'll be traveling. OK, well, OK, then we will not meet next Wednesday because it is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, so you have a week off. So go enjoy that most American of celebrations, and give thanks anyway, despite the COVID regulations. And uh, I, I like Thanksgiving. I've made videos about it, and I've written articles about all the way back to George Washington declaring a day of Thanksgiving to God very specifically, that it is supposed to be a day set aside for all Americans to thank God for his singular providence. I like Thanksgiving. Give thanks to God. Eat some food. See your family. It's a good thing. We are in Isaiah chapter 21 tonight. One of Isaiah's contemporaries was the prophet Amos. And when we were working our way through 1st and 2nd Kings, we were also plugging in the various minor prophets in particular, just so that we understood where they settled historically in the succession of kings in Judah and in Israel. The book of Amos starts with a reference to Uzziah. That's one of the ways that we know that he is a contemporary of Isaiah. He had a much, much shorter prophetic career than Isaiah did. Isaiah spans his lifetime. Amos was about a day and a half. And so, big difference there. But the book of Amos starts with declarations of God's judgment against Gentile nations. Now, last week, as we were reading in chapter 19 and chapter 20 of Isaiah, I mentioned that these were prophecies against Gentile nations and that those Gentile nations were under God's judgment despite the fact that they didn't have the advantages that Israel had. Israel had the law, Israel had the prophets, Israel had the covenants, but the Gentile nations did not. They did not have that revelation of God, and yet God was judging them. That same question came up four years ago when we were studying the book of Amos. And so I want to start by addressing that question again, because I did get an email this week, which asked the question, isn't it sort of intrinsically unfair for God to judge Gentiles who have not had the same revelation as Israel? I mean, Israel, yes, you should judge them, because they have had the revelation, they've had the goodness of God, they have had the exercise of God in their midst. They've had God's deliverance out of Egypt. They've had God protecting them. There is therefore a greater guilt for Israel turning their back against God than there would be for Gentiles that are chasing after foreign gods who don't know the difference and to whom God has not revealed himself. That was the basic argument, but isn't that unfair? So I'm going to go back and revisit the same argument that I made four years ago when we were looking at Amos. Which argument comes from the book of Genesis? So, even though you may have just turned to Isaiah 21, turn to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to read the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, because this is a very important moment. This is after God has flooded the earth, He has killed everybody, He has left eight people alive Noah and his family on the ark. Therefore, whatever God says to them is basically what he has said to all humanity. There are only eight people on the planet. He forms a covenant with them, and as part of that covenant, he lays out a requirement of them. And that requirement stands. I would argue that requirement stands to this very day, but let's look at the requirement, and I think you'll understand that humankind is not just guilty because of the Adamic sin, not just because Adam sinned and became our federal head, and therefore we are all born into sin, but we are also actively rebellious. We have already been placed in a covenant with God where he has set out a standard, and the nations of the earth are all guilty before that standard which is why God can indeed judge the nations of the earth because they continue in their rebellion against the standard of God. Here, let's look at it. After the flood had subsided, Noah built an altar to the Lord. That's chapter 8, verse 20. And he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's the Adamic nature. Soon as men are born, they are born evil. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, in other words, the change of seasons... And cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So God has made the promise that he's never going to again flood the earth and kill every living thing. Chapter 9 then starts, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, now this is the beginning of God's agreement with the eight of them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you, in other words, the fear of human beings, and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. In other words, you're the top of the food chain. Man has the ability to hunt and to kill all the other animals. And therefore the fear of humankind, the dread of humankind, is going to be on every living creature. Verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. And I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So green plants are good for food, and every animal that lives is food for you. But, here's the caveat that God places. Only you shall not eat Flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This is standard biblical doctrine throughout Old and New Testament that the life of anything or anyone is in the blood. People cannot live without blood. You drain the blood out of them, they're gone, they're dead. So God says, even when you eat a creature, you cannot eat them with their own blood. And surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man's brother I will require the life of man. In other words, if a beast kills a man, I'm gonna require the blood of the beast. But if a man kills a man, I'm gonna require the life of that man. Okay, this is the standard that God is placing as his covenantal agreement with all humankind at this moment. There's only eight of them, but they are the progenitors who then fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And here is your standard. You can't eat flesh that has its blood in it, And I am surely going to require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and so multiply in it. All the nations of the earth, all the people groups of the earth, all the racial groups of the earth, all people of the earth can be traced back to the eight people who were on the ark. And the eight people coming off the ark made a sacrifice to God. God formed a covenant with them. I will show you that in just a moment. God even uses the language of covenant. I'm forming a covenant with you. And the only terms that he puts on the human beings is no blood. No bloodshed. Don't kill each other. If you take some other man's blood, I will require his blood of you. Okay, so can we say that human beings have followed that rule and standard ever since? No. No, clearly Human beings have been committing nonstop warfare and atrocities and killing constantly. When we look at Isaiah, and he is talking about the foreign nations, the Gentile nations, the one thing that they all have in common is that they've been at war. That's what Isaiah is predicting, that they are all warriors, that they are all defeating each other, that they are all killing other people and spreading bloodshed everywhere. Therefore, that makes them all guilty of this covenant right here where God said, I only require one thing of you, and that is that you don't shed blood. God spoke to Noah and to his sons and said, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That means the terms of this covenant apply to all the descendants of Noah and the eight people on the ark. And who are the descendants of the eight people on the ark? Absolutely everybody. And because it's absolutely everybody, we are all dependent on the terms of that covenant. And mankind to this very day continues to shed blood. Mankind to this very day, every time they abort a baby, every time they go to war, every time they murder somebody else, Every time they are guilty of bloodshed. This was so serious, in fact, that when David wanted to build a house for God, God said, you're not going to do it. Your son is going to do it because you're a man with bloody hands. You're a man of warfare. This was a real serious rule in God's mind. And so it is completely understandable that when God is talking to Gentile nations not only can he hold them guilty because of the Adamic sin but he can hold them guilty because the terms, the only terms the singular terms that he put on all mankind in this covenant are constantly, constantly broken. And therefore God is dead to rights to judge people on the basis of this covenant. Once again Amazing grace, because we are all guilty not only because of the Adamic federal headship, but we are guilty because we are just a warring people. We are a people who shed blood. We are a people who are part of a society of bloodshed. So God says, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the field with you. And all that comes out of the ark and every beast on the earth and I will establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said this is the sign of the covenant that I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud And it will be a sign for a covenant between me and the earth and it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and between every living creature and all flesh and never again Shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh? When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so God said, I'm establishing a covenant. I'm never again going to flood the whole earth. What was the one covenant? Important caveat that God placed on that covenant. I mean, when he did the Abrahamic covenant, when he formed the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, the sign of the covenant was, oh yeah, circumcise. So even Abraham had an obligation to the covenant. What is the one human obligation that goes with the Noahic covenant? Don't shed blood. Don't shed blood. And human beings have been doing it ever since. All I'm attempting to say is, God has every right to judge us. And it's an everlasting covenant, which means it's still in effect, which means mankind is still guilty, not just guilty by imputation, but guilty by action. The nations of the earth are guilty for their bloodshed and for their warfare, and therefore God can indeed judge the Gentile nations. Make sense? Yes. We are now in Isaiah chapter 21. Now, it's going to be easy going through Isaiah chapter 21 to kind of get lost in the weeds because Isaiah at this moment is predicting a very specific moment in time. A series of events that those in the Middle East, especially those in Judah, would be very, very aware of. Remember that Isaiah is prophesying to Judah, to the southern kingdom, and he is prophesying to them in this whole section about Assyria. How often have we seen Assyria come up? Because Assyria was the next great power to rise there in the Middle East. They were the next kingdom that was going to oppress God's children, Israel. And in fact, he took the northern tribes into captivity and came right to the door of Jerusalem and caused a great deal of panic in Jerusalem. Chapter 22 is gonna be about the reaction of the people in Jerusalem as Assyria is coming closer. But chapter 21 is talking about Babylon and because Babylon is mentioned in this chapter and Elam is mentioned in this chapter, and the Medes are mentioned in this chapter, naturally, our minds would go to the the big event that we're all aware of. We would all go to, oh, this is about the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians. But the details don't fit. To tell you my source, I'm going to read you just a little bit of historic fact out of the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which says, many interpreters assume that since Elam and Media and Babylon are mentioned, that Isaiah must have been referring to the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 BC. However, passages referring to the fall of Babylon in 539 indicate that it was something about which Israel was to rejoice because it would soon result in the return of the Jews to their homeland to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. So that was really a good thing and it had also been prophesied by Isaiah that Cyrus was going to allow them to go back so they were actually seeing the fulfillment of the prophecies of God in favor of the Jews so they'd be celebrating but as you look through this chapter what you see them doing is being terrified Mm. you're going to see them hiding and hiding behind the city walls and you're going to see them reacting exactly opposite to what God expected out of them there was no repentance out of them So what you're going to see is that this fall of Babylon is terrifying. It's something to be feared. So the very first verse of chapter 21 says, An oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as windstorms in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrifying land. The commentary says that phrase, the desert by the sea, most likely refers to the area around the gulf that we know today as the Persian Gulf, which would be the territory near Babylon. In Isaiah's previous oracles, he wrote a lot about the Assyrian incursion. As I have already mentioned to you, Assyria looms large here. And Assyria has conquered many of the countries of the ancient world. And so it has that same effect on on Palestine, and in 722 B.C., there was a Chaldean prince, Chaldean Babylonian. There was a Chaldean prince from the Persian Gulf region, whose name was Marduk-apal-Edina, also called Merodach-baladan, because that's easier to say. Apparently, he revolted against Assyria, and as part of his revolt, he captured Babylon. And then he was crowned king of Babylon. Elam, which is a nation northeast of Babylon, were in support of that revolt because they were also under the oppression of Assyria. So they were in favor of revolting against Assyria. And in 710 BC, Sargon was finally able to evict Marduk, Apal, Edina from Babylon After the death of Sargon in 705, Marduk Apal Adina, along with the Elamite troops, revolted against Sennacherib. In 702, Sennacherib finally defeated him and defeated Elam and devastated the home area around the Persian Gulf. So, Isaiah's prophesying about that event. Now that event would be well known among the Middle East area. They would know, of course, about Assyria, and they would know about the crushing of Babylon. They would know about the destruction of Edom, and they would know about the armies of Sargon going into Israel and making their way all the way to the walls of Jerusalem and setting up camp against Jerusalem. They would know all that. We just don't know it because we're so many years removed from it but Isaiah predicts it and even if you don't know the details intimately all I'm trying to demonstrate is what he says in chapter 21 actually did happen historically we can trace it in history but it was all future to Isaiah so Isaiah's prophecy of the future is accurate prophecy and once again every time we see the accuracy of Isaiah historically That ought to give us even more confidence that the parts of Isaiah that we haven't seen come to fruition yet are definitely going to come to fruition because so much of the book has already happened. So that's the background for chapter 21. Let's start reading. This is an oracle. This is a vision concerning the wilderness by the sea or the desert by the sea along the Persian Gulf. As windstorms in the Negev sweep on Everyone who lived in that area would know about the dust storms that come up out of the Negev, the desert area. And he's saying that the armies are going to be like a windstorm. And the windstorms of the Negev sweep on and it comes from the wilderness. It comes from that desert area, from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously. And the destroyer still destroys. Go up Elam. Lay siege Media. I have made an end of all the groaning that she has caused. She there is probably Assyria. The conquering of Babylon. And Elam joining along with that rebellion against Assyria. Would have given a period of peace. A period of relative quiet to the people there in Babylon. That's what's being described here. I've made an end of the groaning that she has caused. But Isaiah has seen such a terrifying vision of destruction and bloodshed that is now heading toward Jerusalem that has already caused massive destruction in Israel. And he's not just a passive observer. He doesn't just see it and say, well, this is what I saw and now the weather he's actually emotionally drawn into the vision. For this reason, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered, I cannot hear. I am so terrified, I cannot see. So this vision that he saw of that kind of destruction was so worrisome and so terrifying to him that it affected him emotionally to the point where he didn't want to see anything, he couldn't listen to anything anymore, and he was in pain in his loins, in his stomach, like a woman in labor. My mind reels, says verse 4. Horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has turned for me into trembling. Twilight being the time of rest at the end of the day. Time to call it a night. Instead, I'm trembling in the night because of the vision that I am seeing. Because this is a vision of whole people groups, whole nations warring against each other and massive bloodshed and then wars that result from it and then Assyria coming down on Babylon again and crushing them and then destroying Elam and then there's just this non-stop bloodshed going on. And it causes Isaiah's mind to just reel. Verse 5 says, They set the table. They spread out the cloth. They eat. They drink. In other words... They're just assuming that every day is going to be like the next day. They're just assuming that their life of leisure and their life of food and their life of luxury is just going to go on and go on. But there's going to be this sudden destruction upon them. So he says, instead of doing that, rise up, captains. Oil your shields. For thus the Lord says to me, go, station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. And then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower and I am stationed every night at my guard post. And now behold, there comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. Okay, so what was he told to go look for? Isaiah says, put a lookout and tell him to watch for this specific thing. Riders in pairs. When he sees that, have him report it. The lookout's up there day and night waiting, and there it is. The very thing he was looking for, horsemen in pairs. And one answered and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Okay, so that's Assyria conquering Babylon after Babylon had rebelled against Assyria and had a brief moment of respite, had a brief moment of eating and drinking and setting their tables and thinking everything was well. And then Assyria came down on them the way that wind blows across an open desert, across the Negev. Suddenly, the Assyrians are there, and as soon as the lookout sees riders coming in pairs, he knows the trouble's coming. And one answered and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. In other words, all their gods, their pantheon of gods, couldn't help them. Nobody could stop it because this had already been prophesied by God. Oh, my threshed people, that is such interesting language. The NASB adds the word people so that you understand it. God is speaking to his people and calling them my threshed. In other words, when you take grain to a threshing floor, you separate it by beating it. And then you throw it up into the air so that the husk will blow away and the good seed will fall to the ground. But the area of the threshing floor is an area of refining through punishment, through beating. And God says his people are being threshed. And my afflicted of the threshing floor, after you fall, after good grain falls to the base of the threshing floor, it's because it has been adequately beaten. Beaten, not beaded. It has been adequately beaten so that it is separated from the the corn from the chaff. Oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel, I will make known to you. In other words, I'm not making this up. I heard this from God, and God is going to punish you. God is going to thresh you. The oracle concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir, which is just another name for Edom and the Edomites. Watchman. How far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? In other words, when's it going to be daybreak? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. In other words, yeah, the sun's going to come, but then another night is going to come again. The danger is constant. If you would inquire, then inquire. Come back again and ask. In other words, if you ask me again, I'm going to tell you the same thing. It's night, it's a long night. We might get some periods of day, but it's going to be night again. Bad stuff is coming our way. The oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night. O caravans of the Dedanites. These are all cities, Arabian cities. Bring water for the thirsty. O inhabitants of the land of Timah, meet the fugitive with bread, for they have fled from the swords, and from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. In other words, get ready Arabia, get ready to feed your fallen soldiers, get ready to feed and water the soldiers as they return from the battle, because the battle is coming to you as well. Verse 16, for thus the Lord said to me, in a year, as a hired man would count a year, all the splendor of Kidar will terminate. Within a year, Kidar, one of the major cities of Arabia, it's going to fall. It's going to be nothing. The splendor is going to be gone. And the remainder of the number of bowmen and mighty men of the sons of Kidar will be very few. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken. The Lord God of Israel has determined that these cities of Arabia and these cities of the Edomites and these cities of Babylon, that these cities are all going to fall to the Assyrians. Okay, so let's connect all of this for a moment because we saw all the way back in chapter 10 that God was going to use the Assyrians as his battle axe in order to correct his people Israel. He wasn't going to allow the Assyrians into Jerusalem, but he was going to scare Jerusalem real bad. He was going to make all the cities outside Jerusalem, all the people groups are going to run to the walled city. They were going to close their gates and they're going to build up their walls. That all actually happened. Hezekiah even reached the point where he was knocking down extra houses so that he could use the wood to keep the walls and the barriers up. Because it looked like Assyria, who had conquered all these various different nations, was now coming for Judah. And they had already conquered the northern ten tribes. And we know that God ultimately punished Assyria for the haughtiness with which they attacked his people Israel. But within God's providential hand, he still allowed Assyria to conquer the whole of the Middle East. And they remained in power right up until God turned the power over to Nebuchadnezzar, the lion that we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. So even as you're reading about this, warfare about this judgment about this bloodshed even as you're reading about these people groups being destroyed these cities and their splendor being utterly destroyed this is all in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God who is doing all these things ultimately to teach a lesson to his people Judah that's what the next chapter is going to tell us so God is in control of human history but you've heard me say over and over again Everything that God does, he does for the benefit of his people because he loves you too much not to do what's for your greatest good, and he is too holy not to do what brings him the greatest glory. And the hard part for us to comprehend is that some of that glorification of himself is all kinds of trouble, all kinds of judgment, all kinds of... War, All kinds of bloodshed and yet it all redounds to the glory of God who is teaching his people how to trust him. So that takes us to chapter 22. This is the oracle concerning the valley of vision. If you want to know where the valley of vision is, all you got to do is go down to verse 8. Which says, and he removed the defense from Judah... In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. The house of the forest is the place that Solomon built to put all the munitions in. So this is the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. Valley of Vision seems to be a nickname for Jerusalem. This is an oracle concerning Jerusalem. And even as Jerusalem is seeing all these (coughs) cities fall, And even as Jerusalem is seeing the Assyrian army come near, even as, he's going to describe, the people are up on their housetops trying to see over the walls so that they can see the, the armies that are encamped around about them, even in that time when they should be repenting and calling on God, even at that moment where God has utterly boxed them in until they have nowhere to go but to him, they instead become completely fleshly and say, you know what? Let's throw a feast. Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. By the way, that's the exact phrase you're going to read here. Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we may die. So rather than repent... They continue to harden their hearts against God and they continue. Remember, this is Jerusalem who has already made deals with Egypt and they've already made deals with the Elamites. They've already made deals to try to protect themselves from the encroachment of the Assyrians when in fact all they really had to do was have faith in their God who was going to protect them, the same God who killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers in one night. But that's not where they place their faith. So this is the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to your housetops? You who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city, your slain were not slain with the sword and they did not die in battle. In other words, they didn't engage the battle and take out their sword and die because they were in a sword fight. Your people are not going to die because they're out there in battle. They're going to die of starvation. They're going to die of lack of water. They're going to die out of disease that's going to run rampant in the city as they're all enclosed there. You're slain or not slain in any kind of heroic way. They're not slain with the sword. They did not die in battle. All your rulers have fled. They all fled together. And they've been captured Without a bow. In other words, as they were fleeing, the Assyrians just picked them off and took them to be slaves. Your rulers have fled together and have been captured without a bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together. Though you had fled far away. Even though you had fled the city and were trying to get away, you were all captured. Therefore I say... Turn your eyes away from me, which means don't look on me. Let me weep bitterly. Now we get some sense of why Isaiah was saying that the vision hurt him so much that he was like a woman in labor that was bowed over in pain. He was watching this kind of destruction. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So the children, the Israelites, the northern ten tribes, his people, destroyed. The people of Jerusalem, under fear, under panic. And he says, I don't even want to talk about it. Don't ask me about it. For the Lord of hosts has a day of panic a day of subjection, and a day of confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, the infantry, and the horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. And then your choicest valleys were full of chariots, rather than full of wine, rather than full of vineyards. All the valleys, the the choicest land, were all full of chariots. They were surrounding the city. And the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. And he removed the defense of Judah. In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest, And you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many and you collected the waters of the lower pool. That's probably the pool of Siloam. They were trying to collect whatever water they could get in order to sustain themselves during the time that the armies were right outside the wall at the very gate. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you tore down houses to fortify the wall. Hezekiah actually did that and you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made it. So listen to this judgment. When he removed the defense of Judah, you depended, rather than depending on God, you depended on the weapons that King Solomon had placed in the house in the forest. That's what you thought was going to save you. And then you saw breaches in the wall, the wall of the city of David, more evidence that the valley of vision is the city of David. And you collected the waters. In other words, you tried to save yourself. You tried to store up water for yourself. You tore down the houses of Jerusalem and you tried to fortify the wall. You trusted the wall. You made a reservoir to collect the waters, but you didn't depend on the one who made the water. Isn't that a great argument? The one who made the water can supply you with plenty of water if that's what you need. The one who has defended you all your lives can defend you even if your wall is broken. Even if you have no army, even if you have no implements of war, nevertheless, God is saying, I could protect you, and you've turned to everything else. You've made deals with Gentile nations. You've gone after the implements of war. You've tried to store up water. you tried to shore up your walls. And the one thing you didn't do was look to me. And I have a long history of showing I will protect you. Mm. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You tore down the houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. And then you did not depend on him who made it nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. If they had understood, let's see if I can put this in the modern vernacular for just a moment, why aren't we panicked right now about what's going on in, let's say, Washington, or what's going on in the election right now, or what's going on with the potential of what might happen if the country becomes more socialistic? All of those are realities, all of those are possibilities, those could absolutely happen. But we're not panicked about it. Why? Because we understand the sovereignty of God and we understand that God has planned the end from the beginning. He's already got the end in his hand. He has already determined it. And therefore, whatever happens, that is God's determination. And we can rest in it. And we bow the knee to it because we know that he has our best interest in mind. That is exactly what Isaiah is getting at here when he's telling the people of Jerusalem, why didn't you depend on the one who gave you water in the first place, the one who planned all this? Long ago. And you didn't even take that into consideration. You haven't even thought about that. You haven't even considered that the sovereign God has already determined this. Therefore, you're going to be okay. Because you belong to him. Because you are his people. You did not depend on him who made it. Nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Therefore. In that day, the God of hosts calls you to weeping and to wailing and to shaving your head and to wearing sackcloth. So in other words, God is doing all this for the purpose of making them repent and to making them mourn and recognize their own lack of consideration of the God who has fed them all the days of their life. But verse 13 starts Instead, even though God's intention was for you to mourn, even though he called you to weeping, to repentance, to wailing, to shaving your head, and to wearing sackcloth, instead, what's happening inside the walls of Jerusalem? There is gaiety and gladness, there's killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, and you're eating meat and you're drinking wine and you're saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die rather than the repentance that God intended for Jerusalem, they're still so completely in their flesh, they're going, well, if we're going to die tomorrow, let's live it up today. In other words, they haven't learned their lesson yet. In other words, God is going to have to teach them a lesson, which is going to include 70 years in Babylon, to humble them and make them recognize the God who redeemed them. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me, saying, surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here? Quickly, let me tell you a little bit of background about Shebna. And you're going to read it right here as well. Shebna was second only to the king. I mean, he's in charge of the king's household. He's in charge of the king's schedule. He's in charge of whoever gets to the king. And so he's pretty high and mighty as the steward of the house. And so one of the ways that people would demonstrate their uh, respectability within society in the Middle East is that they would make sure that they had bought themselves a private grave in a high place. Some place where their tomb would be seen by the populace, so that even after they died, people would say, oh, there lays a great man. Well, apparently that's what Shebna had done for himself, except that Shebna was also with the king while they were showing off all of the riches to Babylon that God is ultimately going to give to the king of Babylon. He's right there in the house of the king as the king is making deals with foreign nations to try to protect Jerusalem instead of looking to God. And so God is holding him guilty for not advising the king better. To Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household, what right do you have here? And whom do you have here? That you have hewn a tomb for yourself here. You who hew a tomb on the height. And you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. So here he was advancing himself in his own reputation and trying to make sure that even after he died, he was going to be respected as a man of power and might and wealth and authority. And God says, even though you've done that, and I love the question, what right do you have to be here? Considering what you've really done. What right do you have? Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, oh man, and he is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball, treating him like silly putty, and cast you into a vast country, and there you're going to die. In other words, you're not going to have that splendid burial you think you're going to have and you're not going to be buried in Jerusalem because you're guilty for what you have done to the king and to the people of Jerusalem. And your splendid chariots, those things you ride around in demonstrating to all the people how powerful you are, your splendid chariots will also be buried there in that vast country. You shame of your master's house. There's a nickname you don't want God to give you. You are the shame of your master's house. And I will depose you from your office and I will pull you down from your station. And then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely around him. And I will entrust him with your authority. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. In other words, he's actually going to care about the people. He's not going to care about himself. He's not going to put himself first. He's actually going to care about what is good for the people. Notice, I think this example is is just so wonderful because the last couple of chapters... Isaiah has been talking about nations and whole people groups and he's been talking in very general terms and saying that God is sovereign over the way that these people groups rise and fall and the way these thrones rise and fall, how these different kingdoms rise and fall. But also God is so personal and this is wonderful to know. He is so completely personal that he even knows what Shebna has been up to and he holds him guilty for the pain that he has caused to the children of Israel, and then God himself picks, the same way he picked David, a man after my own heart, then he picked a man to entrust with the authority that Shebna used to have, this Eliakim, and he says in advance that he's going to be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. That is astoundingly personal. Now the reason that that's especially important to me, is back when I was in college, it was a philosophy professor who knew that at the time I was a kind of good Lutheran boy starting to wander. By the end of college, I had completely lost my faith, but at the, in the early stages of college, still that Lutheran boy, still teaching Sunday school occasionally, and I had a philosophy professor who used to pose questions to the class that I used to think were directed completely at me, And he posed the question, if God exists, is he a personal God? Or did he just simply spin creation into existence and is he waiting to see what people will do with it? Now, of course, his attitude was there is no God. But if there was one, there are so many millions and billions of people, how could he possibly be a personal God? He would at very least have to be An impersonal God who could create things in a large scale, but he wouldn't know how they were going to play out. He would learn. He would watch. He would see what was happening. And then whatever men did by their free will, well, that's what happens. Here you have an example in Isaiah 22 of God being so personal that in the midst of bringing oracles and visions of entire nations and people groups rising and falling and who's going to win and who's going to be deposed and who's going to go into slavery and in the midst of all that, he narrows his focus down to one person. And not only does he judge that one person, but he also knows the correct person, the good person, the man who's going to look after Jerusalem the way they ought to be looked after and he's going to make sure that that person ends up having the authority that Shebna had he's going to be right hand to the king and that whole story is extremely personal the same God who when he was in the wilderness in a burning bush saw Moses and didn't just say hey Hebrew guy take off your shoes spoke to him by name Moses (laughs) <laughs> Moses says, here I am. The same way that that God spoke in the night and said, Samuel, the same God who was so personally acquainted with Paul that he could say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I mean, that's an amazingly personal God. And I am so glad that even here in this Huge, expansive prophecy of nations and kingdoms and Middle Eastern history in advance. In the midst of all that, God reminds us yet again, and I'm completely personal. This is a one-on-one thing with God. The same God who said that he's going to save, according to the book of Revelation, people of every tongue and nation and tribe. He's going to pick people all over the planet, an innumerable number of people, myriads and myriads of people, and thousands, times thousands people. And you think, well, I'm just going to get lost in that shuffle. So you have to remember how personal God is. That in the midst of moving all those people, he moved you in the midst of moving whole nations to himself, that he also brought you to himself. And that he did that on purpose. And that was a completely personal choice on his part. And I love that Isaiah would say that. I will give him the key to the house of David. I will put it on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts... No one will open. In other words, he's in charge of the house. He's in charge of the king's house. Nobody gets to do anything without his say so. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. This is a great bit of imagery. God says the same way that you fasten a hook to a wall, I'm going to fasten him to the wall so that he can't be moved. And then I'm going to hang things on him. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, of David's house. All the offspring and all the issue are going to hang on this man. He's going to make the decisions All the least of the vessels, from the bowls all the way to the jars, that just simply is an analogy saying from the greatest of the people to the least of the people, they are all going to follow what Eliakim says. But, verse 25, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven into a firm place will give way, and it will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. That's probably the reference to Babylon conquering Jerusalem. Got all that? Yes, sir. But during that period of time where God is going to kill the armies of Assyria, 185,000, during that period where he's going to protect them, Eliakim is going to be looking after them The way a father looks after children and the only reason they're going to get that good leader for that period of time is because God himself chose him and gives him the power and puts him in place. And that is, not to put too fine a point on it, remarkably personal of God. Make sense? Yes. Now, did we get too lost in the weeds there? That's a complicated couple of chapters, but I hope that I gave you at least a little bit of insight into what Isaiah was referring to, because those events are not familiar to us, but that would have been very familiar territory to everybody who lived in the Middle East, to everybody who lived through it. It would be like if I had said 10 years in advance that planes were going to fly into buildings, and then it actually happened. We in America would all remember that for a very long time. And so those events of Babylon rebelling against Assyria and then Assyria conquering Babylon again and then taking Elam, those are very specific events that happened in the history of the Middle East. They're just not familiar to us the way they would be familiar to the people who actually experienced it. And that is evidence again, proof again, of God's absolute sovereignty and being able to tell them what's about to happen, even the really, really bad stuff. Questions? No? Did I make some sense of it for you? Yes. Because I've been panicked all day about this, this section. I knew going in that there was a portion of Isaiah right toward the middle where it's just all very... Poetic and allegorical and making brief references to things that they would know that we just don't know. And it doesn't make any sense if you're just reading through it and you're not familiar with those events. So I was hoping to make some sense out of it for you. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Good night. night. Or say good night. Either one. Say good night or goodbye. (laughs) Or just say it as a group. Good (laughs) night.
0: thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace midweek message we encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books q and a's and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons and we invite you to join us again each week when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of god